This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Imagine you find yourself on a stage in front of 700 people, teaching them communication skills. Throughout the course of this three-hour workshop, you receive four standing ovations. When finished, someone in the crowd comes and says to you, wow, I wish I could do what you do, but I'm terrified of that stuff. You are clearly a natural. At that moment, you consider the weight of those words. You are struck by lightning, confounded. Your mind flashes back to you 20 years earlier to memories of pain, frustration, and embarrassment. Because several years earlier, when asked to speak in public, your heart started beating so hard you could feel it pounding in your chest. You sensed all the blood draining from your face and your body froze. Couldn't speak, couldn't function, couldn't even breathe. Freaked out and paralyzed, a major meltdown. Yet 20 years later, someone thinks you're a natural. How does one go from being a public speaking train wreck to an eloquent, powerful, and compelling communicator receiving standing ovations? Even better, this individual that I'm describing started a company to teach people the art and the science of communication and has trained over 60,000 people in 100 organizations in 46 countries. How then to transform from tragedy to triumph? And where does this journey begin? The journey did not begin in a classroom, a boardroom, or a stage. Instead, it began high in the Himalayan mountains with a collection of Tibetan monks who did not even speak the same language. Or did they? When he arrived, he quickly concluded they communicate in a common language, and it's called body talk. How did he do it? How did he come to these conclusions and build this business? The answer boils down to a simple, simple premise. He empowers you to behave the way you were born to speak to strip away the fear that paralyzes you and communicate your way to the top of your proverbial mountains. His name is Richard Newman, and he's the founder and CEO of Body Talk, the science of communication. And it's a pleasure to host him here today. Richard Newman, welcome to A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. Thanks, Chuck. And what an introduction. I love it. The way that you uh, put the whole story together there. It's like, uh, it's like listening to a Hollywood version of my, uh, my story over the last <laughs> couple of decades. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. I, I think you and I are kindred spirits. We are blessed that we really do the same thing. We have taken a very different, more personal approach to how we communicate our brands. But I really love the story of the Himalayan monks, and I think that's a fascinating place to begin. Before we get into body talk, let's examine that. Tell us about the, 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 what I described, and you, you, you so eloquently put it into your book. I love the vulnerability of, oh, my God, you even, and the fact, let me, let me open up. You opened up with a friend of yours who was brilliant and didn't get into Oxford when everyone thought he would. 
And it was interesting, the feedback, in spite of his brilliance, he lacked something. Let's start with there. What did this individual that you learned from lack that did not get him into Oxford University? Yeah, so, so right around the time that that moment happened for me, uh, you know, I, I'd been told by people around me, look, Richard, you, you're just not a good communicator. Like, you need to read some books on this. You need to get better at it for your own sake and for everybody around you's sake. And I was reading books thinking, well, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. But I'm never going to be good at this. So why even try? And at the same time, the most intelligent, nicest, kindest, hardest working, most well-read person that I knew uh, was trying to get into university and passed the exam. They said he was bright enough and then was given feedback, actually, you need to work on your communication skills. Uh, and so that's part of the reason why they, they rejected him. And I looked at that and thought, wait, I'm never going to be as well-read as him. I will never be as intelligent or educated or as hardworking as him. So I'd better get really good at communication. Otherwise, what chance is there for me in this world? Uh, and so you know, that began my sense of mission to think I really have to overcome these challenges. And, you know, my challenges have been going on since I was like four or five years old, where, you know, four years old, I was apparently super confident going to school, enjoying myself, changed school. And then, you know, just before my fifth birthday. And as a result of that, uh, really struggled to fit in, struggled to connect with people there, sort of went into my shell, became shy. I, I am to this day uh, uh, intensely introvert in, in my nature, uh, but only recently re realized that I have high-functioning autism, which to, to give people a sense of, you know, if you're wondering, well, what is that? Uh, the best example I can give you is banter. I don't understand banter. So when I hear banter, I hear someone being mean to someone else and then laughing and then they both laugh and I try it and then people don't like it. Uh, so, so you're not very I, good at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not good <laughs> at it. I think they're going to like it and then they don't. Uh, and so I, I really have had to, to, to figure that out. And so, you know, when I was 17, 18, I was about to go to university, study accounting or business or something and thought, actually, no, I need to stop right now. I've had a good life. I've had a lovely upbringing, parents that care about me. I want to go into the world and really help people, but I also want to study and understand communication. And so that's what led me to, I went to this organization that sends people overseas to go and work as a teacher for, for English. And I thought, well, that would be a good place to start. And they said, okay, we've got this placement where no one's ever done it before. And you'd be working with monks in the Himalayas and in this little Tibetan monastery. And I said, sign me up. That's it. I want to go. And so, uh, and so you I had went. me at hello. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, it'd be terrific to be the first one to go there. And so, but because I was the first one there, they gave me the instructions. They said, here's the name of the monastery. And so I went to the town, which is near Darjeeling, if people have heard of Darjeeling tea. So sort of Northeast India, foothills of the Himalayas. Yeah. And, and to uh, others, it, it, it's where the Dalai Lama went to after his escape from China. Is that, is that do, do I have that right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of Tibetans who have come into India. Uh, so the Dalai Lama would uh, most likely have gone to sort of the, the northwest side. Uh, so, so there's a lot of them, a lot of monks have gone northeast, mm -hmm. many of them up there. And I didn't realize how many. I thought, well, there, there'll be a monastery. I'll get to the town. Uh, and I'll say to a taxi driver or somebody, where is the monastery? Which is what I did. And so uh, the taxi driver was like, uh-huh, monastery. And, and just drove me to this place. And, and these monks sort of looked at me at the doorway and 
sort of brought me into their kitchen and sat me down and then uh, brought me some Tibetan tea. And uh, I don't know if you tried it, Chuck, T- Tibetan tea, you come across this? Yeah, so yeah. It's like a third tea, a third butter and a third salt. And I was yeah. drinking this thinking, wow, I'm going to be doing this for six months. And these guys don't even seem to know why I'm here. Um, and eventually we realized I was in the wrong monastery and went around <laughs> and did this sort of tour of the area. And eventually at the fifth monastery, I found the right place. And, uh, and they brought me in. And what I didn't realize before getting there is that they would speak no English at all. So they spoke Tibetan, Nepali, and Hindi. And so very quickly, I realized words are not going to help me here. I have to find another way to connect. Right. So, you know, this is where many people have heard about body language, where they, they've maybe read celebrity magazines or they've looked at something on the Internet. And generally speaking, most people think body language is about scratching your nose or folding your arms. And what I was able to learn by working with the monks is that actually there's so much about body language where you can connect with people beyond words, deeper than words, where you can create rapport, connection, uh, and actually people can understand each other to the point where by the end of six months, they'd all learned how to have a good conversation with me in English. And I'd actually learned how to speak Nepali, which is the main language of the area. And we've done that all back and forth with an exchange through body language. And probably the key piece, which uh, you know people can take away from this, that I learned that is pivotal to every type of communication is congruency. So for them to understand me, I couldn't do the typical, so I'm British. So British have this stiff, stiff upper lip where, you know, a bit of a poker face situation where we don't give off our emotions. But if you try doing that when the person doesn't know the language you're speaking, doesn't work. And so I had to make sure that my body language, my facial expression, my tone of voice and the words all went in the same direction. So if I was trying to teach them the word excited, I had to look excited. I had to sound excited so they would get the message. Otherwise, for all they knew, I could have been saying pineapple. They'd have no idea. So uh, that's really something that I came back with and then kept on studying it uh, ever since, understanding the intricacies and and the research behind body language. And what did you learn about yourself, your introverted self, who was formerly the train wreck I described? Now you have an enormous responsibility. You're teaching something to other people of a different culture and language for something that was wholly uncomfortable to you. What did Richard Newman find out about Richard Newman? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so many people say, I'm going to go traveling to find myself. Right. And just before I, just before I went, someone said, no, no, no. When you go traveling, you lose yourself right. and then you find who you really are. Right. Uh, and I, I really liked that. And, you know, just before I'd gone, maybe uh, it's about a year before uh, there'd been a, uh, a public speaking sort of competition debate at, at my school. And I fell apart when someone asked me to stand up uh, and speak. And there I was suddenly a year later with this group of monks right. at this monastery where we, they were sitting in the kitchen, maybe sort of 20 of them just staring towards me, expecting me to lead a class that was aged between 10 to 55. And uh, having to overcome that fear and use body language and communicate and teach English, which I'd never done before. I only had a week's crash course training before I went uh, because my placement came up so quickly. Uh, And so I think the, the biggest thing that came out of it for me as a teacher is that because we are so... Uh, reliant on body language to connect, I had to put all my focus on them. There there was no place for being self-conscious. My entire focus had to be, 
Are, am I connecting with them? Do they get the message or not? And to this day, that's the biggest piece that I share with people around communication and, and uh, public speaking, if they need to do it, pitching a business, is if anyone says, oh, I get worried, I get scared, I say to them, the only possible way for you to do that is to be conscious of yourself. If you put in your entire focus on the other person and you decide, I am coming here to lift this person, I'm coming here to lift this room, to lift this conversation, the only way to do that is to put your focus entirely on the other person. And when you've done that, the self-consciousness disappears. You're conscious of them, not conscious of you. And so I, I learned that right from the beginning where I was deeply focused on them for this first lesson, standing up in their kitchen where all we had for a blackboard was three bits of wood that were nailed together and painted black. It barely worked. We had power cuts almost every day, doing lessons by candlelight. And at the end of this lesson, which I thought was going to go on forever, it seemed like it was only five minutes, coaching them for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And at the end of it, they're all cheering and laughing and clapping. And I walked away feeling tremendous, thinking, what just happened? It was that euphoria. And I, and I liken it to um, the late, great Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam, where he goes in and he's suddenly thinking, how do I do some teaching when I'm out here? And, uh, you know, he comes out of the class feeling so, so happy. And, and that's really how I felt. And I thought, OK, I've, I've got to do some more of this. And so every day I was teaching them. I was teaching at a local school and always completely directing myself into what do they need from me? And again, that's really where I coach people on communication. Communication isn't about you. It's completely about the other person. And if you think, what do they need? Where are they? Where do they need to get to? How do I want them to feel uh, and focus on that? Then not only are you more likely to get the results, you're more likely to feel confident about it. And uh, any concerns that you had around communication, body language, stuttering over your words, they start to disappear because your focus is outwards rather than inwards. Right. I, I want to go back just a bit and I want to re-examine something that we started with because I think it speaks to your mindset and leaning in to have the courage to face what you didn't do well. What you described in the book is in England, especially, people strive their ambitions to get admitted to Oxbridge. They want to go to Oxford, they want to go to Cambridge, and they are generally regarded as that is the smartest person in the room. And in our conventional education in the States, it's Harvard and Princeton and Columbia, it's no different. Yet, what you're describing from the episode about that individual that you said that led you to the Himalayas, did it help you in your mind redefine what it meant to be smart? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, because through that experience and then also through immediately afterwards, I, I went to an acting school in London. Right. And, you know, this would maybe be, Potentially a parent's worst nightmare. I know, I know that my parents were like, if you're bright and academic, what you do is you go to university and you study something safe, like be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, something, and then you go on and you have a safe job. And that means you are successful. And what success really means, look, I'm a parent right now. I have two young kids and what I care about is their safety above all things. And I know that, you know, my parents, any parent is driven by that idea of how do I keep my child safe? And so our sense of, of success tends to be written around that idea of, well, if you go to this university and you study this thing, then it's a, the higher chance that you're going to be successful in some way. And, and I always knew that actually that might lead me to a state of, of boredom 
just a sense of doing something that was soulless to me and no discredit to anybody who does those professions. It just wasn't where my passion was. And so I think what it, what it opened up for me was this sense of, well, you know, not only do I believe communication is really important, but that going through that experience allowed me to, to connect with what communication can be at a deeper level than I ever understood. And ever since then, my ability to communicate has been far more important to anybody that I've met and worked with in, in my career than anything else. Nobody's ever said, wait, before we work with you, uh, could I just check what your A-level results were? What, like, what university did you go to? And, you know, keep in mind, there's, there's, there's an American company who we worked with a few years ago where they've been working towards a project worth in the region of $800 million dollars. And uh, they were down to the last couple of weeks before finding out if they got it. The CEO flew in on private, uh, flew in in private jet on a private jet to uh, get some coaching, and and it's the day before they're going to go in for this. And they don't have any idea what my educational background is. Nobody's checking my CV for like where did this guy study or anything like that. Yeah. The only thing they care about is how good are you at communication, and and that is a position I've been in frequently where people very senior, well-respected, very successful, financially well-off have looked at me and other people on my team. And the number one thing they care about is how good are you at communication? Because, you know, I see so many people where they're brilliant, maybe at engineering and they get promoted and they get to a certain level. And there is a ceiling that you cannot go past unless you're great at communication. So I think for me, it was that lesson early on of wait a second, if you get good at communication, actually doors start to open for you. And I started to see that as my communication skills grew, my ability to connect, my ability to teach, my ability to have better friendships, my ability to uh, have relationships, all of that expanded. And that's what made me think, I have to keep on pouring my attention into this because the more I give this, the more I get in my career, the more I get in my personal life. I think it's an absolutely critical skill for anybody. And actually, if any, like if you're worried about Oh, my, my kids saying they want to study acting. That seems like what a dropout would do. I would say everybody should allow their children uh, or, or allow themselves to go and study acting because all they teach you is a sense of how do you connect with the other person on stage or on screen and how do you connect with the audience? How do you communicate and connect with others? How do you tell a story? How do you breathe and express yourself in a way that means something to somebody else? And it's, it's powerful for, for everyone, I think, to have that tool. Yeah. What, to our listeners, what Richard is describing is something I have, I preach on the show all the time, and hopefully I practice. It's called the paradox of success. The skills that got you halfway up the mountain, as many people are promoted on the strength of their technical skills, all of a sudden there is a change in the job description. And many people feel ill-prepared, very much un unprepared and ill at ease because they they are terrified at fulfilling the description that is right in front of them because the higher they go in the organization what richard is describing the less they're doing of engineering of doctoring of lawyering so that leads us to richard and i want to get into as i read your book there was an interesting evolution as i watched and i read about the research that you did that ultimately led you to a conclusion that your best advice is to behave in such a way that something you do very naturally. And if you behave the way that you were born, you were born to speak, you behave and you speak in a way that is very natural. Why does it seem so unnatural and so challenging for the majority of people? 
Yeah, great question. That, and that really was the core of uh, something that I've cared about so passionately for so many years and what I put into this book, uh, which is, you know, having trained people for decades now, it doesn't matter, matter where I go in the world, I get people saying, look, some people are born good at communication and some people are born bad at communication. And I'm born bad at communication, therefore I can never be good and it doesn't matter what you teach me. But like, take a look at it like this. Uh, if you look at the human race, and I think it was um, uh, Yuval Noah Harari who, who said sapiens, this. no doubt. Yeah, where he said, look, take a look at human beings. We are rubbish at basically everything. Uh, you know, <laughs> Usain Bolt can't outrun a squirrel. We are not the fastest. We're not the strongest. We don't have the biggest teeth on the planet. So how is it we became the dominant force on planet Earth? It is because we are better at communicating with each other than any other species. We have this extraordinary ability to come together as tribes, uh, with people all over the planet now through the internet. If you think about what we've done through the pandemic, how people have connected and communicated and achieved things, we're extraordinary at communication. And we are born with that skill, that ability to connect with our parents, with our tribe, uh, and to, to get along with them. And here's what happens though. The first time that you stand up, and I, I've got two kids, I've seen this happen. They try and stand up and they fall over and they try and stand up and they fall over. And if they try with their feet too wide apart, they fall. If they stand up with their feet too close together, they fall. And eventually one day, every human being stands up with their feet shoulder width apart, balancing between left and right, their center of gravity. And they go, I did it. This is how I am born to stand. And then through a matter of difficult experiences or habits that you've come across or criticisms that you've had, eventually you find yourself age 25 being asked to do a presentation uh, to your team and you stand up and you forget how to do it. Or you go back to these habits where you see people crossing their legs or sitting on one hip and shifting across and swaying and doing all sorts of weird things, which if you'd done it when you were younger, you would have fallen down. And so people are doing very strange things later in life based on habits and armor and protecting themselves against criticism, various things. And so all we do to say, look, if you want to become a great speaker, I'm going to strip away those habits and you're going to come back to the way you're physically born to stand. I'm not going to make you different than you are. I'm going to make you who you are, because right now you're being one percent of who you could be. Let's expand. Let's go to the full potential of you. And so we say to them, okay, ground yourself with gravity, feet uh, connected underneath you, lift up that sternum. And then we talk about, well, you know, what about gestures? And people say, oh, I hate gestures. Uh, I feel self-conscious. I can't do it. I don't know what to do. And, and we say, okay, when you were three years old, did you think, oh, I, I can't move my arm. I'm a bit self-conscious about doing a gesture. You didn't, you just moved them. And they were one with your words and one with your behavior. And so that's all we do is say, okay, get rid of these habits and this behavior. And there's some coaching involved in that to get back to a place where your, your words move with uh, your arms and, and so on through breath and connecting with the voice. It's just about strip away those habits that are holding you back. And some people have lots of armor and i had that so many people we coach have that it's perfectly natural but here's the brilliant piece when you take away the armor you come back to the way you're born to speak it feels more like you and you be get better results from other people it's a complete win-win uh, and it, it can feel a little bit vulnerable in the process so we're always easing people into it but as soon as you get there you think wow, I feel a hundred pounds lighter. How did that happen? And we say, yeah, you see that on the floor? That's your armor that you've been carrying around for the last 10 years. 
I, I, I want to I get back to the Oxford example, but this is a great teaching moment for what you and I do, Richard, and I, I want our audience to, to pick up on this. Richard make, made reference to one of my favorite books called Sapiens, which changed the way I thought about human history. But Harari followed that up with a book called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And one of the chapters in the book that I immediately opened to was on education, colon, change is the only constant. Now, Harari, I will say, is a PhD from Oxford. Yet right in the heart of that chapter, this academic trained historian said, there are no lack of educators. And Richard, I'm going to put you and I in that same camp, that if we could strip down the educational walls and bring them back up, his recommendation, and it's mine, and I wonder if it's yours, Richard, is to focus on her, what Harari describes as the four C's of education. And if we could, while we're not taking anything away from the biologists and the engineers and lawyers, the four C's of education include creativity, communication, collaboration, and critical thinking. Richard, do you believe that framework for the conventions of education are superior to the conventions of cram, exam, and regurgitate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, I've mentioned that I'm a father. This is hot on my mind right now. Of right. What does our education system really do? And, you know, I, I thrived in, in education. I went to a brilliant school and, uh, and was academically strong in, in so many different subjects. So, you know, I, I, I didn't suffer through it, but it did. It has been remarkable to me since thinking, well, how many skills for life did I really get? And I think that's, you know, essentially what, what education does, which it's done well for a long time, is it gets you ready for a corporate job, uh, if you like. So it gets you ready for, well, you can go now and be a uh, starting level in this job and then maybe go to here and go to here. Uh, but but late, as you go through your life, you're then going to realize, wait a second, hang on. I don't know. I mean, many people will leave education, not knowing how to cook a meal for themselves, not knowing how to budget, you know, how much have I got to spend and how much do I need to really earn because I'm going to lose that in taxes and I have to spend this here. How much do I really need to earn to do things? How do I connect with other people? If people leave education and then perhaps become isolated, they may have traveled to a certain university, then they're back away and think, well, how, like, how do I get on with these new people I'm meeting? And now uh, I've got a problem that I'm facing and I can't revise for it because nobody's told me what the answer is and how do I come up with this? Uh, so I don't think that education right now really does what it needs to do to set us up for life. And that's where, you know, that I certainly advocate and I'll be doing it for my own children is you've really got to figure out, are you giving them enough to understand communication? That, that's critical. And, and their ability to be creative where I always remember this, when I was, I studied English uh, for A-level, so when I was like 17, 18, studied English, and I had a teacher who set an assignment where she said, what is your opinion on these characters in this book? Something like that. So I wrote uh, a four or five page essay on my opinion on those characters. And at the top of that paper, she wrote in red letter, she wrote wrong. Not I disagree with you or I have another opinion. She said wrong. It can't be wrong. Fundamentally, if it, you're asking my opinion, that is my opinion. There's no way for it to be wrong. And so I got so annoyed and she gave me like a C or a D on that paper. I forget. And so the next week, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I thought next week, what you mean is what's your opinion on this character? That's what you mean. So, so in the lesson, I just wrote down notes and notes and notes about her opinion and then just put that into an essay and I got an A. 
the next week. And I thought, but I, like, that doesn't help me for life. That's just helping me regurgitate your opinion. That's not going to help me succeed. So I absolutely believe that there needs to be a fundamental shift, that education needs to set us up to expand our minds, to, to be able to take on bigger challenges, because there's going to be many that the world is facing over the next few decades. And you know, so many of the jobs that used to exist or, or exist now are going to disappear. You know, various different industries are going to change. So we have to be able to prepare our children to navigate this very different future. And yeah, the only way to do that is to change the education system. Well, Richard, you're giving credence to the quote of your countryman, the late great John Lennon, who had a school assignment. And in the assignment, some of the, the, the teacher said to John Lennon, please write down what you want to be when you grow up. And he said he wrote down happy. And they said, you don't understand the assignment. And he said, you don't understand life. So thank <laughs> you for underscoring what John Lennon has been telling us all along and what you and I do as we wake up every day in the service of someone else's success. I suspect you and I help people to redefine what it means to be smart. But I want to talk and, and finish up the show with your smarts, your evolution. As you were building this business and you were recalling the things that made you wholly uncomfortable and now you are evolving and stepping up and becoming the person you either intended to be or simply because you came to some conclusions in the Himalayas, this is who you are meant to be. Help our audience understand what was in your mind, because at some point you had to make up your mind who and what you wanted to be. Help us understand your process, and maybe they can glean some insight as they're going through something similar. Yeah, so, so I think I would say it like this. If, um, if you... If you write down what your goals are for the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, then it can be a useful process to look at it and think, how many of these goals are actually my goals? Like, where did they come from? Why, why do I think that I need that nicer suit in order to be happy? Why do I think I need that nice jewelry or handbag to be happy? Like, what, That seems to be some external thing. Is it possible that advertising has got in my head or friends, family, culture, wider things has got in my head and said, these should be your goals? Uh, because I think you know, there's a very specific path to life success uh, that is given to us through movies, the media, the education system, the world as it is. Uh, and so I think it's really important to, to be able to move away from those I did it through traveling. I did it through going to, this is maybe an extreme version, go and uh, uh, go to the foothills of the Himalayas. But, you know, I, I used to do this where when the monks were asleep, I would go and lie on, there was a flat roof at the top of the monastery where they were actually building a new room for the Dalai Lama to come and stay with them the year after I left. And I thought, wow, the, the Dalai Lama is going to be here. I'm just going to lie down on a rug in this place. <laughs> and I would just look at the stars and, and I could see, you know, 20 times more stars than you would ever normally be able to see because it was so clear up there. And I would just genuinely wonder, wonder at the universe and think, what do I really want to be? If this is, if this is my one short chance on this planet, what would I rather do with my life? And, uh, you know, there's, there's a nice phrase that comes out of a song. And this song, I forget the name of it, but it's about a guy who, uh, who wants to be an actor. And one line says, I'd rather starve in makeup 
than wake up as a clerk. And what he means by it is, I don't want to be an accountant. I don't want to be in a safe job. I'd rather be treading the boards of the stage, wearing stage makeup and doing something I care about than all of those other things. And so I think for me, it was a matter of really getting deep down into thinking, what is it that I want from my life? that nobody else has ever said to me, that I haven't gleaned from somewhere else, that isn't out there where I'm thinking, I'm I think I'm supposed to do that to be happy. What is it that I really care about from my life? And I think you know what it came back to then for me was that life for me is about others. It's about service. And I think that you know many of the things, if we think about our goals, what we want to achieve, who we want to be, a lot of it is pretty self-serving. If you start to write down, well, I want the big house and I want the nice car and I want to get to here on the career ladder because then when I go to a barbecue, I can brag about my job title. Like a lot of that seems to be about ourselves and it's, it's, very, it's very tempting to get sucked into it. And many of us, including me, would do so. But I think that it was allowing myself to get free of all of that, genuinely wonder at the size and scale of the universe, which you, know, you can do by yourself in your living room, close your eyes and meditate for a while and just let all thought, thoughts drift away and think, what do you come back to that you're so passionate about that you can't not do it? And for me, I thought, for me being on this planet, I could serve myself and that might bring me short-term surface level happiness or I could serve others. And so since then, I've been on that mission of thinking, what can I do to lift people? What can I do to lift my, myself, lift others, lift a community, lift a movement. What could I do there? And I realized to do that, I actually had to lift myself first. I thought I have to get my mindset right. I have to make sure that I work on myself. Put your oxygen mask on first before others, as they would tell you on a flight. Yeah. And then by doing so, I'm able to go out into the world and serve clients that I work with. Our business serves charities that we support. And we, you know, we're serving people who can't afford our services and just allowing them uh, to get these skills too. So by lifting them, I feel lifted and then I can go and lift uh, others. So I think it very much is a matter of get super quiet and listen to that voice within. You've only got a few precious years on this planet. What is it that you have to do before that time is up? And don't get comfortable. Don't get lazy. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until next year to do it. Get started on it today because you never know. Like this pandemic has shown us, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The meteors could come for the planet in the next two weeks. We don't know. So what is it that you cannot not do right now and get, and get started from there? What a phenomenal message, Richard, and it's a great place. And let me summarize a couple of Richard's takeaways. First of all, what brings Richard joy is going to work every day in the service of your success. There's no higher calling, and, and I appreciate the work you put into the universe. The second one is your body speaks before your mouth opens, but your body speaks all the time. Recognize the importance of the body talk on your path to compelling and powerful communication. And I think the last part, and this is the part that I appreciate the most, Richard, you wake up and you help people redefine and to really introspect to themselves, not to get crushed under the weight of other people's expectations, but to close your eyes, look up at the stars and recognize what are you doing here that climbing your mountain comes as a result of helping others to climb theirs as opposed to the disease, I'll be happy when, 
only to achieve the house and say, well, I'll be happy when I get the better car. So Richard, this has just been a lovely conversation and I am grateful for you coming onto the show. Now to our listeners and our viewers, because we are on YouTube, C-Suite Radio, Apple and Spotify, where do they find you? So if people want to find me, uh, probably the best places to look, uh, you can find me on Instagram if you're on there at Richard Newman Speaks. And if you want to find me on LinkedIn, that's the place where I am. I spend most of my time probably. Uh, so on LinkedIn, find me Richard Newman at Body Space Talk. Somebody else got Body Talk. So Richard <laughs> Newman at Body Talk. And we've got loads of free resources, articles, little videos on there if people want to connect. Well, thank you for telling your story. And I think when our viewers listen and hear stories that are from seeming tragedies into triumph and then taking that triumph in the service of others, uh, we're, we're, we're just grateful for people like you. Thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate you having me on. I've really you know, enjoyed the conversation. It was a pleasure, Richard. And to everyone else, I'm Chuck Garcia. This is a Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all the other places where we appear. But thank you very much for tuning in. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.